I want to start this morning with a portion of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I want you to follow these words with me today as we, as we share them with you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This portion of Scripture is called a hinge Scripture in that it, it's introducing between the pre-incarnate and the incarnate Christ. And we're going to be using that as a, as, as a base point this morning in some of the things that we're sharing. The title is, What's the Score? And what I want you to do this morning for a few moments is I want you to think about some family and friends, and even those in this sanctuary... Because I'm going to ask you some questions. If you were to look around this morning, would you find somebody who is taller than you are? Could you find somebody who is prettier than you are? Could you find someone who drives a newer car than you do? If you were to look around this morning, would you find someone who is more athletic? than you are, or someone who has more toys than you do, someone who lives in a bigger house than you do? Could you find someone this morning that has a better retirement plan than you do? If you were to say yes or no to any of these questions, you would have to have come to a conclusion by comparing. It's as simple as that. What's the score? You see, we're, by nature, we are all scorekeepers. That's our nature. And our behavior inevitably drives us to reach a higher point total. In Monopoly, they keep score with play money. In poker, they keep score with chips. In basketball, most of the sports, you keep score, and the winner is the one with the highest point total. In golf, it's the lowest score. But here's the thing. We are always wanting to know where we are in life. Is my life on track? And how am I comparing to everybody else? But really... Our conversation about keeping score is nothing more than you and I trying to decide and determine what our success is like. See, we've had scorekeepers all of our life, parents. I don't know how many of you have had those little stickers on the refrigerator. If you do this, you get a star. If you do this, you get a sticker. If you do this, you get so many points, and if you get so many points, you get an ice cream. 
scorekeeping. Our teachers, they keep score by giving us grades. Our coaches, if you've ever been involved in an athletic event or on an athletic team, you know that most of the time it determines whether you play or not by how well you perform, how well you practice, uh, your attention to detail, your obedience to the coach's uh, plan for the game. All of these things determines whether you play very much or not. Our bosses, our bonuses, our incentives, our raises, it's all determined by our boss. And then we have our co-workers and we have our neighbors and we have all of these people in our life who keep score. Most of us have done it. There are a few of us who still do it, but all of us need to stop doing it. Because when we read this scripture in Philippians and we walk through our message this morning, you're going to understand at the end of this that it's really not about the score. Now, I know there are people that are used to this and people who, who really haven't been that much into athletics say, well, you know, it, it's not whether we win or lose, it's just how you play the game. Those people are called losers. <laughs> they've never won a thing in their life. So they've just become comfortable with it's not how you win or lose, it, whether you win or lose, it's just how you play the game. You say, well, is this something new? Is this a Generation X? Is this a millennial? Is this a Y? No, 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 no. See, to understand scorekeeping, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 4. Because in Genesis chapter 4, and, and these uh, examples I'm giving to you, I don't have time to, to unpack everything, but I think most of you are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. When God was requiring the blood sacrifice, Abel being a herdsman, a sheep herder, he had, he had his animals and Abel picked out the best one that he could find and he offered it as a sacrifice to God. Cain, he was a tiller of the ground. He had the wheat and he had the fruit and those kind of things. So Cain was thinking, I, I, I don't know why Abel's doing this. He's, he's taken the best sheep, the one probably would win a prize at any county fair. Why didn't he take the runt? He's not going to be good for anything anyway. Why, why not sacrifice the runt? But Abel had sacrificed what was best. Cain comes in with his sacrifice. He said, I'll burn a little bit of wheat. I'll bring in some fruit and I'll give this to God. But we know the story that God accepted Abel's sacrifice, and he wasn't accepting Cain's sacrifice. So Cain began to keep score. In fact, losing made him so mad, it made him mad enough to kill his brother. I hope none of us have ever, never been in that situation that, that we've gotten so mad over losing something that we just felt like killing somebody. But that was in Genesis. And then when we move on to Rachel and Leah, that story involves Jacob who had went, and I'm obviously condensing these stories down, but in his journey, he went and, 
on his journey and involved with the watering of the animals, he sees this beautiful young lady come up. And paraphrasing 2014, he says, I got to have her. She's going to be my woman. I want to marry her. I guess I better go talk to her dad. So Laban comes out and he said, Laban, hey, this girl, Rachel, I mean, she's the one. Can I have your daughter in marriage? And Laban says, well, yes, but um, you're going to have to work for me for a while. And I'll give you my daughter in marriage. And so they got married. And the next morning, Jacob woke up and found out it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Not the so pretty one. And, and he was really ticked off. So he goes back to Laban. He said, wait a minute, you tricked me. And so Laban says, well, if you work for me another seven years, then I'll give you both wives. I'll give you both girls. But it's not our custom to give the youngest away before we give the oldest away. So now Jacob has two wives. Leah becomes fruitful and she becomes childbearing. Child number one, child number two, child number three. So we've got to keep score. Rachel couldn't have children. Her, her womb was barren. And so she says to Jacob, take my handmaiden. And, and, and I want you to produce children with her. So with the handmaiden, here comes boy number one, boy number two, boy number three. Th- scores three to three. So Leah gets back on track. And she starts having babies again, and she says, here, take my handmaiden. And so here comes again boy number four, and now boy number four, boy number five, boy number six. And I told my wife last night, I was, I was kind of sharing this a little bit, and I said, you know, Jacob had it made. He had two wives and two concubines. Must have been one happy camper. And my wife says, would you like that? (laughs) And as humble and honest as I could be, I said, oh, honey, no. You are the one. You're the only one. Well, and then Leah breaks the tie by having a girl. But scorekeeping is all throughout Scripture. Saul and David had been out to battle, and they were coming back into town. And as they entered the city limits, the women were dancing, and the people were dancing. And, and the, the, the dance song that they were presenting was, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul didn't like that very much. So he started keeping score by how many he killed and the popularity of the people. You see, scorekeeping has been with us as long as man has been on this earth. We've experienced it, even though we don't want to, it may have happened in our life. But here's what I want to share with you this morning. There are three ways that we keep score. The first way is comparing. And when we compare, and the reason why this ties in so great with Christmas time is because most of us, sometime this week, most of us received a gift. If you're lucky, you got two. 
if you're really lucky, you got three or four or more. But most of us have received this as a gift. The other night, um, my grandkids all got in Friday, and I was Santa Claus. And so I've got all, we've got all these presents under the tree, and all the kids, six grandkids, ages four to nine, very low energy. In fact, my son's with me today. He came up. He said, I want to come up and hear Dad preach. And I was, I was very honored by that. I kind of read into that as, I need a break. <laughs> so if I drive up to Erie, I'm going to get a little bit of a break. Great grandkids. But I, we're, they're, all the presents under the tree, and I won't prolong this, but, but I, I read one and I say, ho, 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 Ethan. He gets his. All the kids are watching. Ho, 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 Kinley, she gets one. Ho, 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 Brody, he gets one. Now, the three that haven't gotten any yet, they're watching. And they start looking under the tree. Is there anything in there for me? And I'm trying to be equal with all of this. So I get everybody gets one, and then they start to get two. And then one gets a bigger box than the other. And these are kids. It's just normal. And they, they're watching. He's opening up a little box. And now she's opening up a big box. And, and what they're doing in their little minds is they're keeping score. He got two. I've got one. His box is bigger. Mine is smaller. And they're just keeping score. Fortunately, I think all the kids were happy because what we've done is we now have them give us a list of all the things that they want. So when they open up their present, it's something that's on their list. They can't go, oh, I didn't want this. But you see, with kids, comparing is really not a big thing. They're just kind of used to that. And if you've raised children, you understand how that works. But when we look at scoring and we look at comparing, there's a verse of Scripture in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4 that says this, each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. That word load is pretty close to the word burden. The only difference is, in that context, the word load means something as though if you've ever been in the military or you've been hiking, it's a backpack, it's a load that you carry, and really nobody else can carry it for you. You see, friends, here's, here's the difference between burden and load. There are times in our lives where people can pray for us, and they can love us, and they can support us. But there's times when we have to carry the load ourselves, because that involves self-examination and self-correction. It would be great. It would be just fantastic if every time I had a load, somebody came along and said, here, Don, let me carry it for you. You don't have to do a thing. There are times in my life when I've carried burdens, and I give those to the Lord, and people come around and help carry those burdens. But 
What Paul's talking about here is there's sometimes when you and I, we just have to have a load. And we have to carry it ourselves. See, that's, that's in the comparison. And then they tell us there are actually three forms of comparison. There's what I call the upward comparison. That's when you compare yourself with those that are in a higher position, higher authority, uh, those who have more money than you do, those who drive better cars than you do, those who live in bigger houses than you do, those who go on nicer vacations than you do. That's called upward comparison. And here's what that produces. It produces envy. It produces envy. Then I have what, what I call a lateral comparison, and basically that involves producing competition. See, it, it, I now compare myself with people who are kind of on the same status that I am. They, same salary range, same number of kids, uh, work the same job for about the same number of years, and, and so Joey over here has got this, and, and we're pretty much even and equal, but I don't have this. And, and Joey went to Hawaii, and I went to Waldemere. I mean, so see, I, I start, see the comparison? And so now I begin to figure out, how can I get to Hawaii next year? And we talk, and, you know, wife and I, we talk and say, honey, ever been to Hawaii? No. Me neither. Honey, we've been married X number of years. Don't you think we deserve at least one trip to Hawaii? <laughs> Start with Waldemere. You'll make it. You'll get to Hawaii. So, lateral comparison produces competition. Then there's what they call a downward comparison. And that is when we compare ourselves with those less fortunate. Well, I have two cars, and they have one. And I went to Waldemere, and they didn't go anywhere. I was able to do this, and they couldn't do that. And so if we allow that downward comparison to become obsessive with us, it then produces arrogance. So you have a choice, folks. You can do upward comparison and live with envy. You can do a lateral comparison and live in competition. You can do a downward comparison and live with arrogance. But I got to tell you, none of these brings happiness. None of these produces happiness. So, that's how we keep score, by comparing. And when we begin to compare, it's something that, that almost begins to overwhelm us. Now, I'm going to read you something today, and the reason I'm reading it is because I want you to get the gist of it. And let me preface what I'm about to say. This is no way judgmental. It's not condemning. It's not critiquing. I'm giving you something that I believe is a little bit of a reality check, and I want you to listen closely. I'm not an Instagram user. I do have Facebook. I have some friends, what few friends I have, 
Somebody's a Facebook user. Um, I have Facebook. I don't use it that much. But let me share something with you. I have a lot of family members that do. I have a lot of friends that do. And I see the kind of things that are posted. People going to parties, to the beach, having a great dinner, traveling, going on a run, doing yoga, generally living an amazing life. If you were to look at these on a regular basis, it would be easy to compare your boring life, like looking at your phone, to the incredible lives of your friends. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you eating more beautiful food? Why aren't you traveling or exercising or doing anything other than what you're doing right now? Why don't you have a better body? See, it's not a fair comparison, of course, because those people are posting photos of themselves when they're doing the more, they're not posting photos of themselves when they're doing the more mundane things. They're not posting about their anxieties or boredom, their arguments or procrastinations or insecurities. But even if you do an apples-to-apples comparison, your highlights to theirs, what use is that? Do the highlights of our lives need to be better than anyone else's? And why? Do the highlights determine our happiness? Do they show us what life is about? No. Happiness comes from appreciating what's in front of you, not wishing that you were doing something else. You find out what life is about by paying closer attention to it, not wishing you were living a fantasy. We don't need to be better than anyone else. We just need to love where we are and what we're doing and who we are. That's really what matters. The comparisons don't make us happier or appreciate life more. They make us feel horrible about ourselves, and that's heartbreaking. That's my thought for the day. But I was looking at that and recognizing how that fits into comparison when we see these things that are going on. The second way that we compete the second way that we, we are scorekeepers is by competing. Now, when our kids were growing up, and my son's with me today, he'll probably remember this. He couldn't remember it a whole lot yesterday. I think it's because it was tra- so traumatic for him when he played it. It's Pitt. If you've ever played Pitt, you know it's not a difficult game. There's wheat and barley and corn and oats. There's the bear and the bull. And everybody gets their cards, and then on a given signal, you're allowed to exchange cards, but you can't exchange just one card. So the name of the game is when we say go, then as a family, it it gets into a screaming match Two, two, three, three, four, two, two, two. And, and you're, you're exchanging with everybody around the table. Four, four, three, two, two. But it gets to a point where you end up with the bear and corn. See, if you get the bear, that's 20 points off. 
If you got the bull, you get 20 points to the good. So you've got the bear and the corn. You don't want the bear, so you keep trying to trade for two. Two, 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 and, and you keep getting them back. And after a while, it gets annoying. And after a while, the rest of the family catches on, and they don't trade with you anymore. You're screaming your lungs out, two, 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 two. Somebody, two. And they ignore you because they don't want the bear. They know you've got that stupid card. And then you really get an attitude. That's stupid, that's stupid. Why don't you trade? That's stupid. You're supposed, you're supposed, rule says, it doesn't say you have to trade with everybody. <laughs> and nobody wants the bear. It's called competition. And, and as my boys were growing up, they played sports since they were about six years old and always involved in competition. And dad would we'd play sports at the house and in the yard, and it was always competition. And they, they got used to that. I'm, I'm so thankful, and hopefully I had a little bit to do in this, is that we did teach them that winning was great, but, but winning wasn't everything. And even, even though we lost, we tried our very best to win. We just didn't say, oh, we're just going to go out there and goof around. You see, competing, competition becomes toxic when it leads to envy and jealousy. So if you're competing with somebody today, stop it. If you're competing with a coworker, or a family member, stop it. The important thing is to accept yourself and love yourself and appreciate who you are as an individual. Because competition poisons the soul when winners and losers become labels of worth and identity. Let me say that again. It poisons the soul when winners and losers become labels of worth and identity. We're doing some things with Max. Max is our seven-year-old, right? Seven-year-old. And uh, Max is kind of funny. And he was sitting at the table. We're doing stuff with him. And Max goes, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'm a fool. Now, that's kind of cute. But we let him know right away, you're not a fool. He was saying in jest, well, it's just a foolish thing I did. But we let him know, you're not a fool. You're not a fool. He's sharp, and he's intelligent, and he's athletic, and, but Max just kind of, you know, oh, well, I'm a fool. But we didn't let that label stick. See, competition and competing does that. And we can even turn spirituality into a competition. When I was first in ministry, we would go to what is known as district council. That's when all of the churches around the state would come together. And when we would get together, one of the first questions were asked was, how's your church doing? That was code talk for how many people, how many people are you running? How, what, what's your attendance? And I remember just starting out, and, and we, we started out at the, at the base. We started out in some, in some tough situations, and, and I remember going to district council, and, hey, Don, how are you? How's your church doing? And, you know, we 
pastors. We're, we're pastors, but we're human, and we always like to speak evangelistically when these questions come up. Oh, we're running about 300, when actually they're running about 110. But 110 is about closer than 1,000. So we're running about 300. And so you get caught up in that, and it, it, it just, it's just, you know, and so we're in this conversation, and, Pastor, hey, Don, how are you doing? How's your church? Oh, we're running about 2,000. And did you hear our latest convert was Jimmy Hoffa? God's doing great things in our church. And after a while, that just got tiring because they didn't want to know how my church was doing. They wanted to know if their church was bigger than mine. And that, that got old years ago. But friends, listen closely. It doesn't always seep into a district council, but it can also creep into the local church. It creeps into the local church because we begin to compare and we understand this whole competition. And I want you to know something. I feel very blessed to be a part of a, uh, of a teaching team where I sense there is no competition. We don't have to get up here and compete against Pastor Jack because we know that Pastor Jack is, he's tops in his preaching and his presentation. I got more hair than he does, but... <laughs> but as far as competing with pastor to preach a message or to compete with Pastor John or Jason compete with Nicole and Nicole and compete, do you understand that when God places a call on our life in a ministry, He doesn't erase our personalities? And we come in on Sunday and say, oh, if Pastor Jack's preaching, I'm going to be there because he does this, this, this. Well, here's the thing that I've learned. If you have two people that can do the same thing exactly alike, one of them's not needed. So if we have a preaching team where all of us do exactly the same thing alike, there's four of us not needed. And just by way, I, I started everything, so... Everybody else has to go. <laughs> Worship style. That's, that's, that with me personally, that's along with district council. I've, I'm so tired of that. I've gotten over that years ago. Worship style. Why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And friends, do we understand that we haven't come to the house of God to compete in worship style? We've come to lift up the name of Jesus. We've come to lift up the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We've come to find somebody around us that we can pray for and encourage and support. That's why we're here, not because of a worship style. And then what kind of position do you hold? Are you on the council? Do you have pastor in front of your name? You see, we have to be careful because competing can come in and become toxic.
Then, the last one, way that we keep scores by climbing. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we read it on the screen for you, for you a moment ago, but it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here's the application. The problem with spending your life climbing up the ladder of success is that you will go right past Jesus because he's coming down. He's coming down. So we had Cain and Abel and Rachel and Leah and Saul and David, and we've talked about comparing and competing and climbing. But I think there was a time in history when Jesus came on the scene, and he came up with a new game. It's called the foot washer. See, back in those days, Everywhere people went, the roads were dusty and their feet were dirty, and, and if it was rainy, it was, things were caked between their toes, and, and it was just horrendous. So when they would come in, they would have to wash their feet. Now, the rabbis didn't do this for their students, and those in higher authority didn't do this for those that were less than they were. And very seldom, on rare occasion, a child would do this for his parents out of respect. For the most part, nobody wanted to be the foot washer. So when Jesus brought his disciples together and he had the pitcher, and the bowl, and the towel, I'm sure all the disciples were thinking amongst themselves, who's going to be the foot washer? Man, I don't, want to, I don't want to wash 11 pairs of feet. Who's going to be the foot washer? And then Jesus, he comes over, and he stoops down, and he takes the water, and he pours it into the bowl. The disciples are taking off their shoes. Jesus, not Joe, John, or Jim, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, the one who did not have sin in his life, the one who was the role model, if you will, for all of Christianity, the one who had raised the dead, the one who had stopped the waves from blowing, the one who had cast out the demons, the one they knew as Emmanuel, God with us. He bends down. And he begins to wash their feet. Let me take a side note here just for a moment. I asked Jim to, if he would help me, be kind enough to help me. I didn't have to pay him for this. But you know, Jim, the reason I ask you to do this is because I believe that even though you're a good dad and, keep him there, and a good uh, husband, you're a servant. 
you've showed and demonstrated to this church and to me over the years your love for children, your willingness to serve without recognition, your willingness to put Jesus first in your life. And it really doesn't matter whether there's been remuneration. It's been all about serving Jesus. And that's why I wanted to share with you this morning. So after they had, Jesus had washed their feet, we, we're full service, we wash and dry. We just don't wax. <laughs> you can go ahead and finish if you need to. Okay. You see, that's what it means to be Christ-like. That's what it means to be like Jesus. People who try to make themselves servants, humbly, honestly, and joyfully, keep getting revealed as the biggest winner. And Jim and Chris, in my book, you guys are winners. Thank you for serving. Thank you. You see, friends, most of us serve by choosing when and whom and how we will serve. I'll serve if it's not raining. I'll serve if it fits my schedule. And I'm not prolonging, and I'm not, I know Jim would not want me to say, you know, poor Jim, poor Jim, poor. I watch these guys on a typical Wednesday, full day work for Jim, full day work for Chris run home, jump in the car, and get over here for rangers and missionettes and nursery, and get home about 9 o'clock or so in the night. It's not a typical day, but that's one of the days of their week. They don't ask, who am I serving? They don't ask when, and they don't ask how. Because you see, a servant's heart, when we choose to serve, we give up the right to be in charge. When we choose to serve, we give up the right to be in charge. Would you stand with me, please? I believe that this message, as practical as it has been, and I wasn't grabbing for straws this morning, but I listened as Tyler went over and over and over and over there's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. And Pastor Jason comes up and says, this year, 2015, is going to be a year of maturity. And I'm sensing that God is going to be speaking to some of our hearts about serving. Not comparing. Not competing. Not climbing the ladder of success. But serving. And when he does, we have to be vulnerable and open. And I hope that we say yes. Yes. Yes, Lord. Would you bow your head?
Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for our friends that have come today. Many have had busy schedules this week. And perhaps we even got up this morning saying, well, really, should, should I go? Should I go? And Father, I thank you for those who've come today. I thank you that you have given us words to encourage us and instruct us. You've given us a reminder that it's not about comparing and competing and climbing the ladder of success. It's about serving. And Father, we thank you for those in our congregation who do serve faithfully, regularly. And we thank you, Lord, for their willingness to put others before them and willingness to put you before everyone else. So, Father, I pray that today will be a blessed day. I pray as we enter into the new year, may our hearts be excited. May we be filled with anticipation that 2015 is going to hold something great from the kingdom of God, and we want to be a part of it. And, Father, we commit this service to you, and we ask that you give us a great day together in your name. Amen. Amen. Let me say Happy New Year's to everybody if I don't see you. Have a great New Year.